It's hard to find the time to read all of the best articles on Bitcoin and the crypto economy. So let me read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. This is The Crypto Economy, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are jumping into another piece today. This is on Unchained-Capital. This is a continuation of the awesome Gradually Then Suddenly series by Parker Lewis. Um, uh, This has been a favorite go-to of mine recently. And this one is titled, Bitcoin is Not Too Volatile. So let's go ahead and jump in, and we will hit some commentary after the fact. Bitcoin is not too volatile. Has anyone you respect ever told you that Bitcoin doesn't make any sense? Maybe you've seen the price of Bitcoin rise exponentially and then seen it crash. You write it off, believe your friend was right, don't hear about it for a while, and then think Bitcoin must have died. But then you wake up a few years later. Bitcoin hasn't died, and somehow its value is a lot higher again. And you start thinking maybe your skeptical friend wasn't right. The list of Bitcoin skeptics is long and distinguished. See here. But the noise contributes directly to the anti-fragile nature of Bitcoin. People that store wealth in Bitcoin are forced to think through first principles in order to understand characteristics of Bitcoin, which otherwise seem on the surface to contradict an establishment view of money, which ultimately hardens convictions. Bitcoin volatility is one of these oft-criticized characteristics. A common refrain among skeptics, including central bankers, is that Bitcoin is too volatile to be a store of value medium of exchange, or unit of account. Given its volatility, why would anyone hold Bitcoin as a savings mechanism? And how could Bitcoin be effective as a transactional currency for payments if its value could reasonably drop tomorrow? The principal use case for Bitcoin today is not as a payments rail, but instead as a store of value. And the time horizon for those that store wealth in Bitcoin is not a day, week, quarter, or even a year. Bitcoin is a long-term savings mechanism, and stability in the value of Bitcoin will only be realized over time as mass adoption occurs. In the interim, volatility is the natural function of price discovery as Bitcoin advances down the path of its monetization event and toward full adoption. Separately, Bitcoin does not exist in a vacuum. Most individuals or businesses are not singularly exposed to Bitcoin, and exposure to multiple assets like any portfolio mutes volatility of any single asset. Not volatile does not equal store of value. It is fair to say that volatility and store of value are often confused as mutually exclusive. However, they most certainly are not. If an asset is volatile, it does not mean that asset will be an ineffective store of value. The opposite is also true. If an asset is not volatile, it will not necessarily be an effective store of value. The dollar is a prime example. Not volatile, today at least, bad store of value. Quote, 
volatile things are not necessarily risky, and the reverse is also true. End quote. Nassim Taleb, Skin in the Game. The Fed has been highly effective in very slowly devaluing the dollar. But always remember, gradually, then suddenly. And not volatile does not equal store of value. This is a critical mental block that many people experience when thinking about Bitcoin as a currency, and it is largely a function of time horizon. While central bankers all over the world point to Bitcoin as a poor store of value and not functional as a currency because of volatility, they think in days, weeks, months, and quarters, while the rest of us plan for the long term, years, decades, and generations. Despite the logical explanations, volatility is one area that particularly confounds the experts. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney recently commented that Bitcoin, quote, has pretty much failed thus far on the traditional aspects of money. It is not a store of value because it is all over the map. Nobody uses it as a medium of exchange, end quote. The European Central Bank, or ECB, has also mused on Twitter that Bitcoin is, quote, not a currency, noting that it is, quote, very volatile, while at the same time reassuring everyone that it can, quote, create money to buy assets, the very function by which its currency actually loses value and why it's a poor store of value. The lack of self-awareness is not lost on anyone here, but Mark Carney and the ECB are not alone. From former Fed chairs Bernanke and Yellen, to current Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, to the President himself, all have, at times, trumpeted the idea that Bitcoin is flawed as a currency, or as a store of value, because of its volatility. None seem to fully appreciate, or at least admit, that Bitcoin is a direct response to the systemic problem of governments creating money via central banks, or that Bitcoin volatility is a necessary and healthy function of price discovery. But luckily for all of us, Bitcoin is not too volatile to be a currency, and often the experts are not experts at all. Setting logic aside, the empirical evidence shows that Bitcoin has proven to be an exceptional store of value over any extended time horizon, despite its volatility. So how could an asset such as Bitcoin be both highly volatile and an effective store of value. Bitcoin Value Function Revisited Consider why there is fundamental demand for Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is naturally volatile. Bitcoin is valuable because it has a fixed supply, and it is also volatile for the same reason. The fundamental demand driver for Bitcoin is in its scarcity. To revisit Bitcoin's value function from a previous edition, Decentralization and censorship resistance reinforce the credibility of Bitcoin's scarcity and fixed supply schedule, which is the basis of Bitcoin's store of value property. While demand is increasing by orders of magnitude, there is no supply response because Bitcoin's supply schedule is fixed. The disparity in the rate of increase in demand, variable versus supply, fixed, combined with an imperfect knowledge amongst market participants, causes volatility as a function of price discovery. As Nassim Taleb writes in The Black Swan of Cairo, 
quote. Variation is information. When there is no variation, there is no information, end quote. As Bitcoin's value increases, it communicates information despite the volatility. The variation is the information. Higher value, dependent on variation, causes Bitcoin to become relevant to new pools of capital and new entrants, which then stokes an adoption wave. Adoption Waves and Volatility Knowledge distribution and infrastructure fuel adoption waves and vice versa. It is a virtuous feedback loop and a function of both time and value. As value rises, Bitcoin captures the attention and mindshare of a much wider audience of potential adopters, which then begin to learn about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. Similarly, an appreciating asset base attracts additional capital, not only as a store of wealth, but also to build incremental infrastructure. For example, more on-ramps and off-ramps, custody solutions, payment layers, hardware, mining, etc. Developing an understanding of Bitcoin is a slow process, as is building infrastructure, but both fuel adoption, which then further distributes knowledge and justifies additional infrastructure. Knowledge leads to more infrastructure, which leads to more adoption, which leads to more value, which leads to more knowledge, which leads to more infrastructure, etc. Today, Bitcoin is still nascent and current adoption likely represents less than 1% of terminal adoption. As a billion people adopt Bitcoin, new adoption will represent orders of magnitude for any foreseeable future period, which will continue to drive significant volatility. However, with each new adoption wave, the value of Bitcoin will also reset higher because of higher base demand. Bitcoin volatility will only decline as the holder base reaches maturity and as the rate of new adoption stabilizes. Said another way, for a billion people to be using Bitcoin, adoption will have had to increase by roughly 20x, but the subsequent 100 million adopters will only represent an additional 10% of the base, all while the supply of Bitcoin remains on a fixed schedule. So long as adoption represents orders of magnitude, volatility is unavoidable, but on that path, volatility will naturally and gradually decline. As Vijay Boyapati explained on Stefan Levera's podcast, quote, Establishment economists deride the fact that Bitcoin is volatile, as if you can go from something that didn't exist to a stable form of money overnight. It's completely ludicrous. End quote. What happens between adoption waves is the natural function of price discovery as the market converges on a new equilibrium, which is never static. In Bitcoin hype cycles, the rise, fall, stabilization, and rise again is almost rhythmic. It is also naturally explained by speculative fear, followed by accumulation of fundamental knowledge and the addition of incremental infrastructure. Rome wasn't built in a day. In Bitcoin, volatility and price discovery are core to the process. Historical Adoption Wave For a more tangible explanation of the relationship between volatility and value, it is helpful to think about the most recent adoption wave from the end of 2016 to present, 
2019. While adoption can never really be quantified, a rough but fair estimate would be that Bitcoin adoption increased from roughly 5 million people to roughly 60 million, an increase in demand of 12 times from 2016 to present. Yet the supply of Bitcoin only increased by approximately 10% over the same period. And naturally, the information and capital possessed by market participants varies significantly. As a massive adoption wave occurred, it was met by Bitcoin's fixed supply schedule. What would one expect to happen when demand increases by an order of magnitude, but supply only increases by 10%? And what would happen if the knowledge and capital of the new entrants naturally varies greatly? The very logical end result is higher volatility and a higher terminal value if even a small percentage of new entrants convert to long-term holders, which is exactly what happened. New adopters who initially purchased Bitcoin in its astronomical rise slowly accumulate knowledge and convert to long-term holders, stabilizing base demand at a far higher terminal value compared to the prior adoption cycle. Because Bitcoin is nascent, the aggregate wealth stored in Bitcoin on a relative basis is still very small, roughly $200 billion, which allows for the rate of change between marginal buyers and sellers, price discovery, to represent a significant percentage of the base demand, volatility. As base demand increases, the rate of change will begin to represent a smaller and smaller percentage of the base, reducing volatility over time and only after several more adoption cycles. Managing Volatility If we can accept that Bitcoin volatility is both natural and healthy, why doesn't current volatility prevent the adoption required to transition Bitcoin to a stable form of money? Very simply, diversification, portfolio allocation theory, and time horizon. There exists a global network Bitcoin, through which you can transfer value over a communications channel to anyone in the world, and it is currently valued, in total, at less than $200 billion. Facebook alone, on the other hand, is worth in excess of $500 billion. For further frame of reference, U.S. household assets are estimated to be valued at $125 trillion. In a theoretical world, Bitcoin volatility would be an issue if it existed in a vacuum. In the real world, it doesn't. Diversification comes in the form of real productive assets as well as other monetary and financial assets, which mutes the impact of Bitcoin's present volatility. Separately, information asymmetry exists, and those that understand Bitcoin also understand that in time, the cavalry is coming. These concepts are obvious to those that have exposure to Bitcoin and actively account for its volatility in short- and long-term planning, but it's apparently less obvious to the skeptics, who struggle to grasp that Bitcoin adoption is not an all-or-nothing proposition. While Bitcoin will continue to steal share in the global competition for store of value because of its superior monetary properties, the function of an economy is to accumulate capital that actually makes our lives better, not money. 
Money is merely the economic good that allows for coordination to accumulate that capital. Because Bitcoin is a fundamentally better form of money, it will gain purchasing power relative to inferior monetary assets and monetary substitutes, and increasingly take market share in the economic coordination function, despite being less functional as a transactional currency today. Bitcoin will also likely induce the definancialization of the global economy, but it will neither eliminate financial assets nor real assets. During its monetization, these assets will continue to represent the diversification, which will mute the impact of Bitcoin's day-to-day -day volatility. See example here, which highlights the risk and return of a 1% Bitcoin plus 99% dollar portfolio compared to gold, U.S. Treasuries, and the S&P 500 at 100 trillion USD. Also see the case for a small allocation to Bitcoin by Zappo CEO Wences Ciceras. Both provide a look into how volatility and risk can be managed should Bitcoin experience a significant drawdown or even fail, which is still a possibility. While failure is a possibility and significant drawdowns are an inevitability, each day that Bitcoin doesn't fail, its survival becomes more and more likely, the Lindy effect. And over time, as Bitcoin's value and liquidity increase due to its fundamental strengths, its purchasing power will also increase in terms of real goods. But as its purchasing power represents a larger and larger share of the economy, its volatility relative to other assets will proportionally decrease. The end game. Bitcoin will become a transactional currency over time, but in the interim, it would be far more logical to spend a depreciating asset, dollars, euro, yen, or gold, and save an appreciating asset, Bitcoin. Establishment economists and central bankers really struggle with this one, but I digress. On Bitcoin's path to full monetization, store of value must come as a logical first order, and Bitcoin has proven to be an incredible store of value despite its volatility. As adoption matures, volatility will naturally fall, and Bitcoin will increasingly become a medium of direct exchange. Consider the person or business that would demand Bitcoin in direct exchange for goods and services. This person or business collectively represent those that have first determined that Bitcoin will hold its value over a particular time horizon. If one did not believe in the fundamental demand case for Bitcoin as a store of value, why would they trade real-world goods and services in return? Bitcoin will transition to a transactional currency only as its liquidity gradually shifts from other monetary assets to goods and services, which will occur along the path to mass adoption. It will not be a flash cut or a binary process. On a more standard path, adoption fuels infrastructure, and infrastructure fuels adoption. Transactional infrastructure is already being built, but more material investment will only be prioritized as a sufficient number of individuals first adopt Bitcoin as a store of wealth. Ultimately, Bitcoin's lack of price stability mandate and fixed supply will continue to result in near-term volatility, but will drive 
long-term price stability. It is the literal opposite model pursued by Mark Carney of the BOE, the ECB and its Twitter account, the Federal Reserve, and the Bank of Japan. And it is why Bitcoin is anti-fragile. There are no bailouts, and it's a market devoid of moral hazard, which drives maximum accountability and long-term efficiency. Central banks manage currencies to mute short-term volatility, which creates the instability that leads to long-term volatility. Volatility in Bitcoin is the natural function of monetary adoption, and this volatility ultimately strengthens the resilience of the Bitcoin network, driving long-term stability. Variation is information. Nassim Taleb and Mark Blythe, Black Swan of Cairo. Quote, Complex systems that have artificially suppressed volatility tend to become extremely fragile, while at the same time exhibiting no visible risks. End quote. Quote, This is one of life's packages. There is no freedom without noise, and no stability without volatility. End quote. Ben Bernanke chairman of the Federal Reserve during the Great Financial Crisis. Quote, The Federal Reserve is not currently forecasting a recession. End quote. January 10th, 2008. Quote, The risk that the economy has entered a substantial downturn appears to have diminished over the past month or so. End quote. June 9th, 2008. Next week, Bitcoin does not consume too much energy. And that was the next in the amazing Gradually Then Suddenly series by Parker Lewis. Um, again, on the unchained-capital.com blog. And it's titled, Bitcoin is not too volatile. So let's hit our sponsor real quick. And then I want to dig into a little bit of commentary on this piece. Another great piece by Parker Lewis. Um, Bitcoin is not volatile or not too volatile. It is volatile. Um, and uh, like I said, like I've said multiple times, I'm really enjoying this series and I, I really got to recommend the Unchained Capital blog. There's a couple of other pieces, not just Parker Lewis's um, uh, series here that I've really loved. I've been actually, I'm <laughs> that's funny. I'm actually wearing my Unchained Capital shirt right now. I didn't even think about it. Um, but uh, I, like I said, I've been really enjoying this series. And uh, one of the things, this, the whole volatile, like Bitcoin is too volatile to be a store of value. The analogy that I keep, I keep thinking of, like, the, like to compare it to fiat, um, like there's the second section in this is called not volatile does not equal store of value. And he uses the uh, Fed. I didn't mention anything about it, but there's actually a chart of the purchasing power of the consumer dollar from, I think we started like 1970 or 1980 or something, going into basically 2018-ish um, on this chart, and just showing the, the rather incredible decline of the purchasing power of the dollar during that time period. And um, all I can think is the... Have you ever seen the... What is it? Um... There's some there's some sort of boat I think is designed by like the Coast Guard, um, that 
that you basically can't sink. Um, there's a there's a video a friend of mine uh, a friend of mine's actually is in the Coast Guard or was in the Coast Guard and uh, sent me this video of this boat going through uh, these going through the waves and um, along the shore and just completely at one point it completely flips over like front ways um, like just takes a nosedive down an incredibly huge steep wave because the boat is really small but it's designed to always right itself. And it's referred to as like the unsinkable boat or something. But then compare that to something like a giant cruise ship that is just taking on a small amount of water consistently. Like those little waves aren't going to do anything to that cruise ship. The cruise ship is going to be completely non-volatile in its sitting on the ocean, uh, even during uh, or even with incredibly large waves to uh, fight against. Whereas that little boat is going to be just tossed all over the place. However, the little boat is not going to sink, and the cruise ship is destined to sink. And uh, so, so not volatile does not equal store of value. The cruise ship is sinking. We know it's going to sink. And yes, it is less volatile, but that does not mean it's storing the value well. It's not, that does not mean it's floating or keeping its passengers safe. It's just taking a very, very long time to get to its destination of everybody goes down with the ship. And yes, the smaller boat looks a lot more chaotic, but it has a vastly less chance of, well, it, it, of sinking, of giving you a problem. You might get, be a little sick on it, might be a little bit rough on your emotions and your ability to stand up straight afterward. Um, and Bitcoin does that. Uh, and, it's, and what's funny is it's actually a decent analogy for the liquidity is that you can have the exact same size waves hit a small ship versus a cruise ship and or a small boat versus a cruise ship. And obviously one is going to be thrown all over the place while the other is not really going to know that waves were hitting it at all. That's the difference between the market size of something like Bitcoin um, and uh, uh, something like the U.S. dollar. Uh, and that is why there is no volatility. That's, I mean, that's why there's no very little volatility in the dollar. And it's why there is very high volatility in Bitcoin, not to mention we're in the process of monetization. That episode of uh, Stefan Lavera's podcast with uh, Vijay Boyapati, definitely recommend it. Um, that he mentions is, uh, where's that quote? Um, Okay, here we are. Establishment economists deride the fact that Bitcoin is volatile, as if you can go from something that didn't exist to a stable form of money overnight. It's completely ludicrous. Could not be a better simple statement of fact. That there is no way, the only reason money isn't volatile, the reason it becomes a, uh, a pricing mechanism or a unit of account later in after its post-adoption phase is simply because it is the most liquid asset in the economy. Is Bitcoin currently the most liquid asset in the economy? No, of course not. That's why it's not a stable unit of account yet. It can't, there's no, there's not a switch that just goes from one to the other. You have to build out decades and decades of infrastructure. In fact, 
In Bitcoin, it's happening faster than it's ever happened in history. No money has ever just exploded on the scene like this. Um, because of the internet, because of its digital nature, it's moving faster than anything that came before it. But there's no way, there's, there's no way to get from, you know, um, thousands of dollars worth of market to trillions of dollars worth of market with huge chaotic swings. There's going to be volatility. And it's actually incredibly important that there is volatility because, um, well, well, it's natural. When you, have, when you have a doubling of the stock-to-flow ratio every four years, all that can happen is that it's like a rubber band effect. No matter what you do, if you're moving that much in the price, um, in the stable like price equilibrium, you're going to overshoot and then you're going to undershoot on the way back down. And the only possible way to avoid that is to introduce some sort of centralized issuing mechanism. So miss, it's totally missing the point. If it's decentralized and it has an entirely um, restricted supply, if the supply schedule is completely known and completely stable, then the only thing that can adjust to demand is the price. And that's the beauty of it, is that we've got a money where the policy is, not, is completely 100% transparent, and it doesn't get manipulated, it doesn't take value from people, uh, simply to get the false idea of, uh, or this ridiculous idea of a lack of volatility, some stability, which is not stability, but just a slow bleed of the, of the actual monetary purchasing power. And at the same time, it does so with a huge moral hazard and an attack vector that couldn't be easier for the wealthiest and most corrupt in society to just have this one center, which, oh, well, if I'm just friends with these people, I'm just, I'm, I'm you know, I get a, a back door into the, the room where everybody's printing all the money. And I'll probably talk about this in maybe tomorrow's episode. I'm not sure if I'm going to have all my notes together yet because I'm, I'm reading a number of other pieces in order to prepare for one of the ones that I'm uh, doing. Because I've never actually, except for like one or two pieces, I've never read one that specifically I 100% disagreed with, that I, I, re I was reading on the show just to essentially tear it apart. Um, and I will be doing that sometime this week. Uh, so... I'm reading a couple of other pieces that are referenced in that, just to, just to get a refresh on it. Um, there are things that I've read in the past, but it's been a long time. So um, I'm trying to pull the notes together on that, but it's one of those things that when you talk about something like the regression theorem, and you talk about like a transactional currency, store of value with, with previous monies, um, because they were already market goods, because they were already goods with alternative use cases, which is what led to the, I guess you could say the foundation or the, um, the acceptance of the regression theorem as supposedly the true story of money, um, was that they already had markets. Like even if we're talking about salt or wheat, like some of these past monies that have happened in the, um, throughout history, they had robust markets in which they were already they already had a maintained value so they were already storing value because they were consumable so even when they try to even when you try to pose that um the regression theorem would suggest that the money's first um use case was in a medium of exchange which is 
actually the argument of a lot of people. It's completely negating the fact that store of value was achieved through the alternative use case. That's how something like wheat or salt became a medium of exchange is because it had a large liquidity market already for it being, for it being useful in exchanging value. Only then can you actually use it for a medium of exchange. If it had no other alternative market and then had never had established itself as a store of value for some other reason, maybe just because of its scarcity or its monetary properties um, elsewhere, then it would not have the liquidity in order to be a medium of exchange. It requires that market growth. It requires the infrastructure. It requires widespread acceptance for a medium of exchange to be possible. To attempt to skip that step and think that you're going to have something that is used to transmit value before it's used to store value makes no sense. It has to have value to be any good at transmitting it. I can send you an email, but that doesn't mean I've sent you $30. I can write $30 in it. I can scan a, you know, a $20 bill and a $10 bill into my, uh, into my computer and attach it in the email, but I still didn't send you $30. Like, that doesn't mean anything. The email doesn't hold the value. So, great. That's a really quick and easy way for me to send you a copy of my $30. But no, it doesn't hold value. No, it does. it's not scarce. No, it's not an asset. There's no way. Like, it still blows my mind that someone doesn't think that in the, the order of operations here that storing value doesn't come first. It does. It absolutely must. It makes no sense otherwise. And I don't care if you point out Menger or Mises to, to the contrary. Well, then Menger and Mises are wrong if that's what they said. And I really don't think, that's not how I interpreted their arguments, even though they do make some statements that are a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit on the absolutist side for uh, whether or not that is the case. But I'm, I'm getting a refresh on that stuff right now because I am curious exactly how... Uh, um, to, to refresh on the regression theorem and stuff like that, which I haven't really uh, updated myself on in quite some time. So um, that's what we're going to, we're going to be talking about some of that stuff this week. Um, wow, I, I guess I never even really introduced the regression theorem to anybody who didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Uh, Mises' regression theorem is that um, money must first come from a good that he's used for something else. Because, well, well, basically because historical money has always been that, that. that's always been the case. Um, and to, to pretty much that's, that's the truth. Um, and it makes sense why as well, because there's not been, there's been hardly any, what's like consciousness as to the value and use of money. Like what are the properties of money? Uh, and there's been very little study into what money is. It's just always emerged in society. It's not like declarative. It's not, um, uh, well, except in the case of governments um, over the years, because it was obviously such a powerful uh, way to centrally control a population or an economy. Uh, that's when it got co-opted by governments. But it has always emerged in societies. Any society that you know, focused on trade and exchange, had to develop a money at some, so it, some, some point. And it, uh, its survival basically uh, lasted until it mixed with another society that was able to cheaply produce it, basically when that money lost its scarcity. But inevitably, a good that had a high liquidity 
market and was highly desirable for, uh, for many people in that society was what ended up being money. And that makes perfect sense because as a medium of exchange, the end game of a monetary instrument, what you want is it to be widely accepted. So if you've got a market where half of everyone on the market accepts one good and it's the, the single good that um, it has a greater market than anything else, well, then it makes no sense for the other half not to accept it because it's the one that's most likely to get them the shoes that they want or uh, the, you know, let's say it's salt. Well, you know, if they want wheat, they're probably going to get it. They're going to have the highest chance of achieving, uh, acquiring wheat from someone else if they have salt already. So salt becomes the currency. Salt becomes that, that medium of exchange. But it only does so because it's already got a huge market that allows it to store value. People already see some other value in it, but it stored value first. It developed the market first. It got the liquidity first. Then it was like, oh shit, here's a great thing that we can use as a medium of exchange. It didn't happen in reverse. It can't happen in reverse. It makes no damn sense. And just like VJ says, how in the hell do you go from no market, no infrastructure, uh, no one knows about it, no demand, to highest demand ever, trillions of dollars in the market, um, a giant infrastructure across the world without volatility. It is an, an absolutely absurd proposition to think that a criticism of volatility in Bitcoin means that it won't work as a store of value and that it somehow needs to be fixed because volatility is basically antithetical to it. It's a requirement. It's an absolute requirement. So, yeah, that's, uh, we'll, we'll finish this here. Um, I'm a little low on time anyway. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this show. Don't forget to follow Parker Lewis and check out the unchained-capital.com blog. Like I said, one of my favorites, and I, uh, I've got another piece by them that I'm going to be reading soon, and it's not a Parker Lewis piece, but it's so much fun. It's Bitcoin Astronomy by uh, Dhruv Bansal, if I said that name right. Hopefully I said it right. Um, but it's a really fun piece, and we're going to be diving into that one soon. So uh, if you haven't read it, it is on the way. All right, let's see. Anything else? I guess just follow me at The Crypto Economy. I got a lot of stuff coming uh, this week, hopefully, and... Uh, yeah, uh, listen to the Crypto Economy podcast. This is where you're going to learn everything about Bitcoin and this new economy. You're going to learn about these great arguments that Parker Lewis has and that so many other, from literally all of the best writers and thinkers in the Bitcoin space, there is just an ocean of fascinating topics and perspectives to go through um, in this new ecosystem. And I think it's our obligation to learn it, like to not go blind into this future because we will build the wrong thing. I mean, the internet had all of this potential too, and look where it got us. It didn't get us. We did achieve some degree of freedom and connection to people, but we at the same time lost all of our privacy. We created a surveillance leviathan, and it's our obligation to learn these tools to figure out how to build and support and try out the alternatives 
because I want to correct this path. I think we can. And I think Bitcoin is such a key piece of taking us to the real potential of the internet to actually solving some of these massive corruption uh, and the, these economic imbalances that have just poisoned so much of our trade and our ability to be sovereign in the world. And I think there is a new wave of digital disruption here in the Bitcoin and crypto economy that are making that possible, that are bringing it back to the forefront and uh, sending us to that next plateau of liberty. It will be the technology, not the politics. Cut off the news, listen to the crypto economy, and stack some sats. All right, guys. Um, don't forget to follow me again on, at The Crypto Economy. Subscribe to the show. Uh, if you would like to join us in the Telegram group uh, with the rest of the Crypto Economy crew, we talk about all, all kinds of fun stuff in there. Uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the crypto economy. Help support turning all of the best articles and research and written works in Bitcoin and the crypto economy into the audiobook versions they deserve. That is what I do here. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. So check it out on Patreon. If you can't do that, though, please just share this out. Just getting the word out and letting other people know there's still hundreds of thousands of people in the Bitcoin space that don't know I exist. And uh, if you just tell one of them, it, it makes a world of difference. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening and uh, sharing it out. And until next time, take it easy, guys. Mm -hmm.